Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Mike Phillips with Century 21 All Pro in Kansas City, Missouri. He's licensed in two states, Missouri and Kansas, so he can work both sides of the Kansas City border town. Last year, he closed 1,268 transactions with a total sales volume of $34 million. His average sales price was $27,000, of which 100% were sellers. Mike Phillips is the broker owner of Century 21 All Pro. He's been an agent for 12 years. Mike has two careers. One, he's a producing agent. Two, he's a managing broker. This interview will focus on Mike as a producing agent. The 1,268 closings are Mike's personal production, not his company. Mike was ranked as the number one agent in the USA for 2010 as listed in the Wall Street Journal by Real Trends. He's a perennial winner. Over the years, Mike is ranked in the number one, number two, and number three spot for total units closed. This is his second time as number one. Mike specializes in selling REO properties. He works as an exclusive seller's agent. He does not represent buyers. He represents distressed property sellers such as banks, asset managers, HUD, Fannie Mae, and FDIC. Mike operates without a formal team. He created a decentralized model to keep his fixed costs down. For administrative tasks, Mike uses three members of the broker staff when they are not helping other agents in the office. For field work, he uses a loose group of 10 independent inner circle agents who work for free in exchange for knowledge and access to the REO market. Mike is a straight shooter. He will tell you how to break into the REO market and the biggest mistake most agents make with asset managers. Listen carefully as Mike explains what it takes to list homes on an industrial level. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Mike. Thank you very much. Before we get into what you're doing today, I'd like to go back for a minute and talk about what did you do before you got into real estate? Basically, I was living in Southern California and also living in an airplane. I was doing international business based out of an El Segundo company. We would source product in Asia to our own internal designs and we would brand it, label it, distribute it through Europe and through America, mostly consumer electronic products, uh, 
it took me to 43 different countries and was uh, just an exciting and wonderful time in my life. Why did you decide to get into real estate? Well, in my career, I bought and sold a few homes. I knew I was the world's best salesman, but when it came time to for sale by owner my house, it didn't work. The gentleman on the last listing I gave out before I became a realtor, he double-ended my house in a weekend while I went out to Vegas to party, and he made about $30,000 over the weekend where I lost an insignificant amount of money compared to that. It sounded like a lucrative thing. I jumped in it with both feet. When you got started, did you have a fast start or a slow start? I got my first paycheck after I got my work permit cashed within 14 days. It was a for sale by owner. When I got my work permit, I jumped in my car. In Missouri, you're allowed to work as a normal realtor with a work permit. I actually convinced the Missouri Real Estate Commission to fax me my work permit because I didn't want to wait the extra day. Still today, I don't know anyone that's ever been, been able to get them to do that. So I called a for sale by owner, said, hey, I'm brand new. I got 40 hours plus a week to do everything about real estate, and I have no clients yet. If you'd like me to spend my 40 hours selling your house for you, let's do it. They were in Arkansas. They said, sure, why not? I sent them the paperwork overnight. They sent it back to me the next day. I was in business. I took the information I had. I used the key that they left under the mat. I went into this stinky little house, needed some work. I said, okay, here we go. I made a flyer. I opened up the yellow pages back then. The Google wasn't working as well. And I drove around a flyer to the uh, home improvement places and remodelers. By the time I got back to my office, I had a phone call. said a guy wanted to see it. I did a U-turn. I went back over there. He made a cash offer on the spot. I called the seller. And basically, uh, a few days after that, we had a cash transaction where I double-ended that house. Did you keep that pace up through your first year? Yeah, uh, we went crazy. But I had a lot of uh, learning things. You know, the training uh, in our business has come a long way since then. But it always comes down to people's skills anyway. You are in Kansas City, Missouri. Can you tell us where is Kansas City, Missouri? Kansas City, Missouri is on the far west of the state, on the top left part. And it's almost symmetrically in the middle of America. We're on the Missouri River. Right over the river is Kansas City, Kansas. Please describe your current market. Our market is very complex. We have uh, Johnson County on the Kansas side and Wyandotte County on the Kansas side that we routinely do business in. Johnson County, Kansas is a very affluent uh, corporate headquarters type of area. Usually the homes there are about triple if not quadruple what they are in Wyandotte County. Wyandotte County is more entry-level homes. It is uh, an emerging area. On the Missouri side, we deal mostly in Jackson County, which is a very large, dense county, and we deal with uh, Clay County and Platte County. Clay County, is there's a Ford plant there, so we have a lot of uh, workforce housing there. Platte County seems to be um, more of the executive pricing, and all of these areas have had their own little ups and downs, and sometimes the markets can depend on the large employers. Platte County, the Kansas City Airport feeds, so depending on what the airport's doing. Also, the Clay County is dependent on the Ford plant, and Johnson County a lot of times can be counted on from Sprint. Also, in uh, 
Wyandotte County now, there's a lot of new businesses and new shopping and things like that being built also. That's a large market area. Do you have a license for both Missouri and Kansas? Yes, I've been licensed in Missouri since 1999, and I got my Kansas broker's license, uh, I believe, in 2002. And so you're selling on both sides of the border? Yes. The Kansas properties, in my specialty, which is foreclosure listings, uh, the Kansas ones are a little more complex. They have a redemption period when the home goes into foreclosure, where in Missouri it's a much quicker process. So if I have a choice, I avoid Kansas on those because of that redemption law. Are the majority of the homes there, are they REO and short sell, or are the majority of the homes retail sales? At least half right now are um, distressed assets. Do you have a niche or a specialization? I've made my living for the last five years on listing homes on an industrial level for pseudo-government agencies, a multitude of banks, and several uh, asset management companies. So you're basically working at the REO market? Yes, When I first got my license, I was learning the business, and foreclosures here were pretty rare. This was uh, probably late 1999 or early 2000. I wanted to show a property, and the co-op company was closed. I called the agent direct. Really infuriated this guy. He told me all kinds of things that I never wanted to know about my mom, and uh, I was shocked at, at how rude this guy was. And I I really put my tail between my legs and wondered what was wrong when I was just trying to show a guy's property. So he told me, he says, look, I do 100 of these a year. You're not going to amount to anything. I mean, I caught this guy at at, at a prime moment of his day, and he literally dressed me down because I asked him for the co-op information to get inside and show him a house after his co-op company was closed. So at the next sales meeting, I said, hey, what's going on with this guy? And they said, oh, well, he sells REO. And I'm like, what is that, you know? I mean, does that mean you can be uh, uh, so unprofessional and rude to people? And I said, you know what? If he tells me he sold 100 houses in the last year and acts like that, you know what? I bet you if you're nice, you can sell 1,000. And you went out to prove it. I chased that uh, business as an early adapter to REO and, you know, Surely I've sold more than a 1,000 homes uh, a couple of times, you know, in a 12-month period. It's funny because sometimes uh, when I teach the CE class here for REO in my marketplace, I have uh, people ask me how I got into the business, and one of the things I tell them is that story. And one of the guy's hands went up, and he says, yeah, I know who you're talking about. He still works for me. So his broker was even in my class. When did you start to move yourself into the REO business? What year was that? I would say my first taste of it was probably September 2002. And I got a phone call, and it was a well-known bank that asked me if I was interested in listing a property for them because it was down the street from a property that I already had listed. I didn't know what. I didn't know if he was expecting me to do it pro bono for free or whatever. I had no idea what he was talking about still. And when I found out that it was a house with nobody in it and there was no emotional sellers to deal with and I still got paid regular commission, I was on it. And I just went from a tear straight on. And I still represent that bank today. You didn't contact the bank. The bank contacted you. Yes. And ironically enough, I've been in a position now. My reputation is known throughout the asset management community to when they have a problem in Kansas City marketplaces 
that they recommend me to each other. So quite frequently, I get recommended to people that I've never heard of from my reputation. The majority of your business are these REO assets, correct? Yes. And you're not doing any buyer business. You're only focusing on sellers. Is that correct? Correct. I can't remember the last buyer I worked with. Let's go back into that story in a little more detail. If somebody wants to get into REO and they want to learn from you, first of all, they'd have to get someone to call them, and that'd be tough. Why do you think that that bank manager called you? They called me because no one was truly specializing in that marketplace for REO at that point in time. Plus, he looked up, I guess, on, on one of the, like, realtor.com and saw that I had a property near that property, and he decided I might know what's going on. So the first one, I got lucky, really, and it was just uh, something I stumbled into. But I'd rather be lucky than good. And how did you take it from there? How did you get the second REO listing? Was it with that same bank? Did you work with that same bank for a certain number of years, or, or did you immediately start looking at other banks to work with? What happened was they ended up giving me another couple and asked me if I wouldn't mind driving 20 miles. I'm like, well, yeah, that's fine. I tried to explain that in Los Angeles, 20 miles can take you an hour and a half, but here, 20 minutes is, is 20 miles. So they were like, okay, great. So it kept expanding to that bank, and finally I'm like, look, you know, this sounds uh, like it's working out pretty good for me. Maybe I'll contact some other banks. So I wrote a note and uh, sent out notes to the local banks here, and the local banks didn't get hit at that point. And basically I expanded it and just tried to network. I said, well, you know, what other companies are you, you know, seeing in the marketplace that you guys uh, compete with on REOs? And the asset management companies were always very friendly with me. And then you you start to... Uh, digging into it and just paying more attention. And, you know, when I would attend the realtor conferences, the other people that were doing REO business, we compare notes. I've always found that the generosity of information from other realtors is one of the most surprising yet helpful things in this business. So that's one of the reasons I'm actually sharing some technical tricks and um, workplace experience with you guys is I like to give back to the community when I can. And this is a, a rare thing for me to be so uh, open with this information. When you were trying to get started early on, you mentioned you started to write letters. Was that your main entry into these other banks was to write a letter? Did you also call or visit? Yes. I would actually, when I identified an asset management company, I would jump in a, in a plane and uh, go out and schedule a meeting with them. Even if I knew I was going to spend 20 minutes chatting with an asset manager and then get back on a plane and fly home, those were the things I was willing to do and willing to spend the money and time and resources doing. And I made a little resume. The resume talked about our experience, the marketing tricks we did, those kind of things. You know, it just worked. Then they started coming on to where there was a foreclosure trade shows, things like that. And I would attend those also, present myself as a person already doing business with those assets and as an expert, if they needed help. So many times they would stumble into somebody that was not doing the right work and they were looking to change. And I would always you know, present myself as, hey, if you ever get stuck or that agent gets overloaded on new assets, you know, always happy to help you. And sure enough, it just took off. No, no other people in my market were getting proactive and flying out and seeing these asset managers or showing up at the trade shows. You know, back then, as funny as it may sound to some of the Generation Y 
people didn't even like giving out their cell phone number back then because of the, it, was, it would cost them money. I've never had a problem spending money on my career. You just got in the middle of the action, and you also had the first mover advantage. You were one of the first people in your market to take advantage of the trend or the transition. Yes, uh, my crystal ball was working loud and clear. Did you predict that the market would change, or did you just see that opportunity because of that fellow that you bumped into with 100 listings? I'll tell you what, I'd like to take a lot of credit, uh, but I'm no Alan Greenspan. Basically, I saw a niche, and I pursued it at the right time. I had no idea that it was going to grow into be the, the main thing in real estate for so long. But it was something I actively pursued in the beginning, and I just happened to get lucky on pursuing what was going to be the biggest thing to happen in real estate for the last five years. How many banks and asset managers are you currently working with? I'd probably say about 30 right now. You also mentioned the government. What government entities are you working with? We have done a lot of HUD assets through asset management companies. Um, We have our fingers in some FDIC listings, and those are kind of hard to get on and also a little tougher to to, uh, qualify for. Also, you know, Fannie and Freddie are both uh, pseudo-government agencies or however they want to call it, and we've been doing business with Fannie Mae for a number of years. How many listings a month do you think that you're receiving or how many, I think they're called assignments, how many assignments are you receiving each month from each of these these entities? It can vary. Last year, I had some that would send me over 50 a month and then sometimes, you know, I might only get one or two every few months from some of the smaller banks. So it really changes. I mean, the main thing I can tell you is If you have your word on the street that you're doing these properties and you're networking with these banks and asset management companies, you better answer your phone because a lot of times your opportunity is going to come from when someone else dropped the ball and they need the rear ends covered today. If there was someone new trying to get into this business, they don't have that first mover advantage, how would they break in? Well, it makes me laugh still today. Some of the agents in my company They're like, oh, I'm not answering that. I don't know that phone number, and it's out of town. I'm like, oh, my goodness, that is the most insane thing that's ever come out of your mouth. Why wouldn't you want to do business with someone that's not in your market that has an asset here? You know, call, answer, get proactive. If if you're not answering your phone, you're not going to do it. I'll tell you what, one of the mistakes that I see when uh, agents want to get into the REO market, and I guess it's because I make it look so easy they think it's a walk in the park, I guarantee you it's not. But what I see is they'll actually meet an asset manager or send a note saying, oh, I've got all these buyers and investors that I'm working with. You know, buyer, 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 buyer. Okay, well, you know, these guys take the fiduciary responsibilities very seriously. So you've already identified yourself as bringing in buyers. So they sure don't need a conflict of having their selling agent also represent the buyer. They don't like that, and they're not comfortable with it, and most of the times your brokers are not as well. So if you'd like to get into this business, don't preach about how many buyers you have. That's the absolute opposite thing that these asset managers want to hear. Is a better approach to state that you are a specialist and you specialize in sellers? Correct. I am a listing agent for distressed assets. My job is to facilitate transactions Basically, a lot of times, you just got to get out of the way. When you say get out of the way, you're talking about the asset manager? Basically, some of the homes that we deal with are bid online. 
as long as you are dealing with an online society, give them all the information they want, put it out there. When the other agent wants to make a bid, don't slow down the process for them. Make this easy. Answer the question before they know they have a question. That's what I'm saying. You've got to just get your job done, prepare. Preparation is everything. And when you know what information they need to place an offer, or if you've sold 5,000 bank assets, you've heard every question from every co-op agent, put out a FAQ. Here's all the questions that you're going to ask. Even if you don't know it yet, here's the answers. Help them look good in front of their clients. Be the most fantastic person and company to co-op with, and business will be the path to your door. What other advice could you give somebody who wanted to break in? You stated they've got to be proactive. They've got to answer their phone quickly. Who should they go out and contact? How should they get started? Should they go to one of these conferences uh, that are out there? Here's a couple of a couple of different things. First of all, you've missed the wave. You don't want to be the caboose on this train. The bulk is done. The agents that are here that are getting all the business have earned it. Basically, the best way I can recommend for someone wanting to get into this business is latch on to the big hitter in their market, offer to do their price opinions, their signs, their lock boxes, fulfill those obligations that you know they have, start weaning your way in there. Once you learn the systems, the attitude, the language, all of these wonderful little things that you have to have, or else you're going to get into this thing and you're not going to do a good job on it. So one one thing is be careful what you ask for. You may get it. So when you get in, start trying to apprentice or assist uh, uh, one of these rainmakers and learn what's going on and tell them, one day I'm going to pursue my own listings. Never be dishonest. Don't pursue the listings that you get uh, exposed to with him or her also because that's unethical. And they're do, basically doing you a favor. So... And a lot of times, like with us, if you come into my inner circle, you have a a non-compete with my specific vendors listed that will last 24 months. It's not preventing you from doing business, but it's preventing you from using the trade secrets that I've taught you against me. Just smart business. So take take those skills, apply it to different banks. Once you actually have some transactions under your belt, then you can actually go and try and uh, secure your own clients. Because if you don't have any business and you stumble into a listing, you're just going to uh, do a poor job of it, really. You're not going to understand the, the systems and the language and the speed that this stuff happens at. So don't do yourself a disservice and try and pitch yourself to get listings until you've actually done some for a bank or assisted a rainmaker in this because you will not have a good experience. Once you get on those banks' asset management lists, of people that have screwed them up or have cost them money or let deals fall apart, you're never getting back on them. You're one and done. So there's a bad agent list? Oh, yeah. We all have report cards, too, with our vendors. When you talk about an apprentice program, you mentioned you have no team members. So are you talking about in a a traditional team sense, or do you mean like a co-lister? How would somebody make one of these arrangements? Well, what I've seen happen with success around the country is you'll have a a big producer on these assets, and they will have someone come to them and say, hello, I'd like to uh, learn more about this business. I'm happy to assist with your BPOs and your data entry and basically perform almost uh, ministerial acts and not 
even necessarily licensee acts, depending on what your state regulations are. But you've got to learn that business somewhere and learn how the ebbs and flows and the, and the terminology and even the technology that goes into it. So I wouldn't call that necessarily a team. What I would say is it's an a la carte real estate method. Henry Ford invented the automation process for assembly on cars. I think I invented the assembly line for real estate transactions. You've mentioned this inner circle and a 24-month agreement. Explain more about that. Are you talking about other agents in your office or other agents in your area? Who's helping you and how did you put those relationships together? Basically, I get approached constantly about trying to get into this business. And what I've realized was if you train these agents, it's going to help everybody. A rising tide lifts all ships. I'm a firm believer in that. If you're going to try and sell foreclosures, you better know as much about them as you can. Same thing if it was a lakefront property or a tennis property or anything. You need to know the product. So when it came time to me actually going out and putting up signs and lockboxes at a house, boy, that's going to slow me down. Is that the best use of my time as a high-functioning adult? No, it's not. I could farm that out. I could pay a service. Well, if an agent wants to go do that and start taking leads from me in exchange for doing that work, well, I think that's a positive. It's almost like a barter system. So with my agreement, with my inner circle agents that get a ton of leads, I've been so busy where I've taken entire banks and asset management companies and I've rewarded the people that have assisted me with signs, lockboxes, BPOs, and things like that. So I can focus my fiduciary responsibility on my sellers and I don't want to lead for a buyer. What am I going to do with that? And so the people that I give those to, that's one way they get rewarded. The other way is, is if you've earned your stripes, I'll actually give you asset management companies or banks to deal with on your own without me. That's the reward. That's what I'm talking about. Is this a formal program where you advertise for these folks? Never. Yeah, I've never had to. There's always a list of people that want to get on there. I keep a little scratch piece of paper on my desk right now. I've got... One, two, three, four, five, six names on there, and two of them already have lines through them. So, you know, these are the next ones that will get in if I ever have a, a geographical area that needs some help. But most of these people have been with me for five, six years now. How many people do you estimate you have in this inner circle? I'd say ten. And basically their job is to just take the leads from the buyers and do a good job with them. They help you with all the administrative and manual tasks. Well, I actually have full-time administrators, so there is a difference. I, I don't want to hire a desk worker to try and do it. I want someone who's never in the office. Those are the people that I want out there because sometimes things happen at properties. If I had a property that had a break-in or something like that, and they want me to go, you know, hey, Mike, did anybody, you know, check on this property And you know, since Leslie it got broke into? Well, the best use of my time, driving 45 minutes in one direction, or sometimes I've had listings up to four hours from here, it's impossible. So I perform as a listing agent, not as a property inspector. So the inner circle sometimes is a property inspector. Sometimes they may take updated pictures if, if there was snow and now there's no snow or whatever. So it's those type of little tasks that get you in the circle. And if you continue and do well, Eventually, I just give you actually your own assets, and those are the ones you can you know, deal with on your own. 
I think some other folks that are doing what you're doing will call this person or this these tasks a field rep or a field agent. They're going back and forth to the property. Sure, I understand that terminology. That might work. So you're farming that out to other agents that you know in exchange. They get to pick up the buyer leads. That's their compensation. You're not paying these people any other compensation. Is that correct? Zero. Now, I do have office administrators. I have like an office secretary, you know, a contract secretary, a data entry. But, you know, they take care of all the business for everybody here. You have an administrative staff that you're sharing with the other folks. You're the owner broker of your office, and so you're sharing your staff with the other people in the office. Correct. Now, the terminology you used is interesting because with with me, I didn't have anyone to show me what's going on here. I didn't have already a roadmap to follow. So when I did this, I had to invent everything. I had to invent the processes, invent the everything from, from start to finish on what the asset managers are, are needing, how I can take care of them, and the things that, that don't you know, involve fiduciary responsibilities or the marketing, those little tasks like that, I can farm those out to someone who does a better job, all kinds of different things. You know, I'm not, I'm not Ansel Adams when it comes to taking pictures. How many administrative people are on staff that are working both for you and the other agents in the office? Each of my offices have a minimum of two, and... I also own a co-op company, and if things get hot and heavy at one of my other offices, they will take overflow business and work it also. What's a co-op company? When one realtor wants to show another realtor's house, in our market we have a third party that sets up showings. And sometimes that is going to mean you have to call and get you know, alarm codes or appointment times, those types of things. So what we've done is when we were closing a couple thousand deals a year, like last year we did over 2,000 transactions, well, you know, that, that can be a sizable amount of money to farm out. And I decided that I could keep the money here in my own town, spend the same amount of money, uh, and control it better. I can control my message. I can control the quality. I can make sure that, that all these things are done the uh, right way. And... Also, having them as backup in case things get uh, too much in one of my real estate offices, they can, you know, email or or scan the information to them and have them take care of, you know, MLS updates, entering sold data, uh, accounting information, those things. So basically, I took the money as a big company that I was spending on an outside service company, and I kept it in-house with my own money and choose my own staff, yet I can also use that staff for other things when needed. This co-op company, is it just setting the showings for your listings in your company, or is it also setting showings for other companies' listings? Initially, I built it as my own baby. And almost immediately in the marketplace, we had competitors calling that number and asking if we could do their listings. Ironically enough, I had an agent who was spinning off to do his own brokerage for my company. He actually called the line and asked if uh, he said, hey, I'm going to be leaving the company uh, that I'm at now, and I'm going to want to hire you guys. Is that okay? Well, he didn't even understand that it was the same company that I owned. So that was pretty funny. So it has a different name from your company? It is a standalone business, yes. Let's get back into the REO and, and how you're, you've set it up. We've talked about how you're helping a new agent get started or a neophyte 
into this inner circle concept. You say you have about 10 people in there helping you out, uh, but you also have an administrative staff that's doing double duty with you in the office. My listings as a company do not get treated any differently with zero preferential treatment than any of the agents that also work here. I was an agent and I run this company as I would like it to be as a top producing agent. Some days those things conflict with each other, but I'm always going to choose the company's interest over my own. And again, my job is to facilitate transactions. And as a broker, I have to be available to my agents. So the agents come first, and I've been doing this long enough where I can multitask like a, a madman. And sometimes I'll be on a phone getting an instant message and a text message while I'm Skyping somebody. And I can handle it. I'm a juggler is what I am. But I take care of my agents. They always know I got their back. But also, it's getting the transactions done. So I have to fill out my own little contract checklists. I have to check my own files. I have to make sure that my commission sheets are correct and the commission letters, all that stuff. And those are things that, that not a day goes by without a, a ton of paperwork just getting blown through here. I've made one error that I can track back as far as I can remember on a contract. Somebody snuck something in on me in an unconventional spot. They were trying to get a some junker car that was at a property included in the property. And it taught me a while ago that I gotta read every single contract, every single line, and it's not just, hey, skip to the blank spots. So we are extremely diligent about that. What saved me on that one was I, I basically the the other agent was trying to be slick, but they made some uh, errors on the name of the person and the funds and all that. So it ended up not being a complete contract, and we bounced it. Last year, when you closed the 1,200-plus transactions, could you break out what percentage or what number of transactions were coming from each of these sources? You have traditional banks. You've got the government. You said HUD and FDIC, Fannie and Freddie. Could you give us some kind of picture of how that broke out? I would say at least 70% of the homes were owned by HUD, and I'd say the others were typical banks. The FDIC at that point for last year was a brand-new entity. Okay, and then Fannie and Freddie, were those part of what you called the banks, the 30%? Yes, yeah. And is one of those bigger than the other, Fannie or Freddie? Ironically enough, I do not do any Freddie. I only do Fannie. Hey, Fred, if you're listening, hook me up, baby. Can't seem to get their attention. It's uh, it's crazy. It drives me bananas some days. Yeah, Fred, Freddie, it's like I, I don't exist in the world. How did you break into that HUD market? looks like you're doing a lot of business. How did you break into working with HUD? I will credit Century 21 100% on that. We network with each other through our franchise affiliation and if you go to events, local, regional, international, you meet great people. Well, and these ones, Century 21 broker in Texas had an affiliation with an asset management company in Texas that was doing HUD assets. He knew me as being a very diverse office as far as languages, culturally, lifestyles, just about anything in the world. We are a unusually diverse office for our marketplace. And that's the way I like it. But I grew up in Southern California, so it seems like normal to me. But it is different. So I get a call 
from my friend in Texas. He says, hey, do you feel like listing some HUD properties? And ironically enough, I'm thinking back to that first day the bank called me and asked me if I wanted to do an, an REO property. I was like, okay, well, tell me what's going on with it. And he explained the process and what's going on. And, and I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? You know, what else am I doing? Because you've got to think about this as a realtor. There's only so many sources of business, new homes, resale homes, relocation business. You know, besides foreclosures, man, you were kind of stuck. So it's a whole new stream of, of business. So when I get this call, I'm like, sure. And he's like, okay, well, it sounds good, man. And I'm like, what kind of referral fee do you want? He says, I don't want a penny. He says, I'm just helping somebody out, and I'm helping you out, and you'll return the favor one day. Absolutely, I will. So getting into that program, I had to fill out literally a New York phone book style application. And it was almost like an audit and submitting like blood DNA practically. But we got through it. We got it done. And the stuff started trickling in, and it was mind-blowing. And then it kept coming in and in and in, and, and it was so complex. We dedicated our company to catering to this business because we found we might you know, kill ourselves on the listing side, but it drives buyers to our office. With HUD's message, I was really inspired. We dedicate ourselves to HUD and HUD's message, and HUD's message is home ownership for everybody. And it sounds so cliche, but a lot of times the realtors forget what we're doing. This usually is a person's most significant investment of their life. I hope that they understand the fiduciary responsibilities they have and the complexities that are involved in these things. Anytime you forget about that, you've really done a disservice. How long ago did you start up with HUD? It would be funny to look that up, but it seems some days like two months and some days it seems like 10 years. But I would say I've been doing HUD homes for probably um, five or six years. Their program has changed over time, hasn't it? Didn't they start with a program where you just put up a sign in a box for a small flat fee? Basically, yeah. The, the listing fees were negotiable, and some of them I've seen as low as a dollar in some parts of the country and some of it was you know less than half a percent and those were the programs where i got involved with and i said you know they hired three of us to cover this area i had the full vision and i was inspired and we committed to it like it's the most important thing in the world and we would drive our business from those uh, buyer leads that would come in i was so busy doing that work i didn't have time for buyers that was one of the ways that this business got set up was catering to that hud2 contract now that ended in October, and now HUD-3 nowadays is even a different approach to it, and the paperwork is a little more complex, and the duties of the listing agent are much more extensive. But what they've done is they've taken that business and broke it up between a few other companies now instead of uh, really going with one uh, powerhouse. Are you currently part of the HUD-3? Yes, I've been doing HUD-3 from day one. In my market, there's three asset management companies as liaisons between HUD and us, and I do represent all three of the asset management companies in my territory. What is the difference between what you were doing under the HUD-2 and what you're doing under the HUD-3? It's funny because you're like, oh, you know, just throw a sign in the dirt and a lockbox on there. Well, before, with HUD-2, price opinions, inspections were, you know, important. You would put a sign up, but the homes all used a master key system. And it was pretty easy. 
but you know you had to be available to help and assist with contracts, etc. And part of it almost was like a our cheerleader for HUD. Now in October, HUD three came along. HUD three is a lot more inspection orientated, and each of those three asset management companies has their own approach on the way that they want to cater to this contract. So you have to learn three different ways to do basically the same job when it all comes down to it, which is facilitating a transaction. The job now, you have to use lockboxes. There has to be a co-op service performed. There has to be a, oh, my gosh, it, it's it's way more involved. It's apples to oranges compared to HUD 2, yet it's the same thing. You're facilitating a transaction, and the home is owned by the government. I heard that with this HUD-3 that you, as the listing agent, have to do more marketing. Is that true? Each company that's an asset management company has their own approach on it. So in general, I'll say absolutely. Has the compensation changed between HUD-2 and HUD-3? Yes. HUD-2, your listing commission was negotiable. And sometimes, from what I believe, was some people did it for a dollar. And some of them were maybe somewhere around half a percent or something like that. I don't know. I just know what was going on in my territory. But now, HUD's buying sides and selling sides are equal in our market and I believe the rest of the country. And that, you know, market standard rates is probably an inappropriate way to put it. But whatever the buyer's agent makes, the seller's agent makes in their marketplace. Did the income go up? The work went up, but the income went up as well? Correct, yes. It's much more extensive now. But, yeah, we're much more well compensated as listing agents under HUD-3. To break into that, you had to, first of all, be successful in REO and, secondly, fill out a monster form and go through a process. How long did that process take from the time you decided you were going to work with HUD to the time you were approved and you could start uh, receiving listings? I was super lucky to have the opportunity to apply. On HUD-2, it took about three months. And on this one, I'd say the process, and I'd like to think because of our resume and the things we offer to this business and our level of experience, I think from application to receiving listings was probably 60 days. Any advice you could give to somebody who's trying to get into the HUD world, and list HUD properties? Yes. Contact on HUDHomestore.com, the asset management companies for each area. They're listed under each listing. Call them. Send them a note. What kind of things should you say in that note? Don't tell them that you have a whole bunch of buyers. That's for sure. (laughs) What you want to tell them is the services you can provide. They really will give strong consideration to women and minority listing brokers. You know, the more things that you can offer to them, again, because each asset management company has their own spin on things, and it varies from territory to territory and from asset management companies. Basically, unless you have an inside scoop on what they like and what they do, the best thing you can possibly do is present your best case and why you should be honored to work with these asset management companies that represent our government's assets. How do you follow up with that without being a pest? Is there a recommended amount of time that you should continue to contact once a day, once a week, once a month? I'll put it this way. The squeaky wheel gets the oil, and the hungry wolf comes home with the bacon. 
I'm aggressive yet professional. When it comes to chasing a new client, hey, I'm in. You can't solicit business, of course, that's already listed with another company. You need to make sure that you're specifically telling them in the future, if you get new assets, I would love to work with you. That's okay. Now, when you get into the situation, sometimes an asset manager has, is in a bad mood. Those things can affect how they're receptive to you. If you were to try and attend a big four REO conference and you were lucky enough to stumble into an asset management company there, he's probably not or she's probably not in the most receptive mood to meet a new broker there. They're getting bombarded. You want to try and approach it differently. Back in the day, when I first got into it, the banks would call these properties other real estate owned. Hmm, that's an Oreo, Oreo cookies. Send your resume in with the thing of Oreo cookies. Get it? They are so sick of Oreos now, they don't ever want to see them. But those are the kind of things. If you're going to stay in the box and think inside the box, it's not for you. If you're dynamic, a little crazy, and you really have a good idea of HUD's message and how to get it to the people, and you're helpful by nature, yeah, you probably have a good chance. Get those resumes in there. And some of the areas are going to probably come up for bidding again in October. Some will just automatically renew. Do you know what the minimum requirements are from HUD? Do you have to be a broker and own your own office, for instance? Do you have to have a showing service like you do? I don't know any other company that's in real estate that owns a show, uh, showing service company like us for co-oping. So that is definitely a no. As far as being an agent or a broker, no. They they don't care as far as that goes. You know, the, the parameters uh, that they are looking for, I'm not privy to. I don't select them. I just know that I must have fit in what they were looking for. <laughs> so, again, you know, anything that you can offer as far as extra marketing, unique marketing, language skills. There, there's so many service-orientated things here. They want us to, in HUD 3, they want us to perform X amount of HUD agent-to-agent -agent classes. They want us to have training like that. And those are the things where you can't over-market yourself on these things because you don't know what company is looking for what and what asset management company might appeal best to you. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. You've also mentioned that you've been working with Fannie Mae. How did you break in and start working with Fannie Mae? Funniest story yet. I went to an REO convention. I went there a few years ago when I wasn't quite doing what I'm doing now, and I wasn't quite as well-known in this market and I went late into a lunch. This was uh, one of the FDIC people speaking at this conference. I sat down at the last spot of the table. All these ladies sat, sat at the table. None of them had name tags on. And I sat there, and when the speaker was done, they were just chatting with me because I was the new person at the table. And, you know, we had a good time. And we sat there and ate lunch and teased each other. And just, you know, nice people you meet at a real estate convention. And when we were done... She's like, well, you, you know, so did you find the asset management companies out here yet? Since I told them that's what I was doing. 
And I was like, you know, I can't see it. When I do, there's too much of a line. I don't want to bother them. She goes, oh, yeah, well, we're all Fannie Mae's asset managers for this area. Give us your card. You're on board. You sound like the perfect person to help us. So it's not what you know. It's who you have lunch with. Now, it sounds to me like a lot of your business has been the fruit of your relationships that you've established, the networking and kind of being in the right place at the right time, but you had to put yourself there. Are you attending these conferences often? Are you going once a month? Do you try to go to a lot of conferences so that you can meet people? I'd say there's three or four that I go to. I'm a member of the NRBA, the National REO Broker Association, and they open a lot of doors for us. It took me years to get in there, and now that I'm in there, it's been rewarding. But there's also anything. You just Google REO convention, and you'll see 10 of them pop up. And you know what? You never know if it's going to be the big ones, the small ones, the regional ones, the international ones. You don't know which ones are going to do what for you. And so the whole thing is, is if you're alive, act like it, get out there, press the flesh, look at somebody in the eye, tell them what you can do. The rewards are yours. Could you list off any other conferences that you recommend people go to or at least the ones you attend? You know, I really don't want to endorse any of them by name. I've had uh, ups and down relationships with all of them. Sometimes, I'll tell you this, they ask you for advertising, and the advertising goes nowhere, and that just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. So what I'm saying is I've had luck showing it up at a lunch table. I've had uh, great luck with attending other things that are related to real estate, such as uh, Century 21 franchise things, but also NRBA. Some of the other things that I'm a member of is NAREP, NAREB, and AREA, and those are real estate organizations that are dealing with uh, minority home ownership issues. And I've been a member of all of them for many years, and I get a lot of return uh, business-wise and spiritually from them. You talked about pressing the flesh and talking with people when you meet them. I assume that you are constantly bringing up the fact that you are an REO specialist. Yes, a seasoned REO specialist, because any knucklehead can say that on their business card. But until you get 5,000 transactions under your belt, you know, you're not touching me. So you've used your success to leverage yourself into other success, and you're sure to toot your own horn and put out how many transactions you've closed, what kind of business you've already done. Well, it's funny. I'm a little bit of a dichotomy in that because I, you don't hear me bragging about myself, and, and you don't hear me doing that a lot. And if you met me, you know, I'm full of confidence in things right now. But I'm a quiet person. I keep to myself. I keep my nose to the grindstone. Never overlook the value of hard work. Focus and work hard. That whole thing works smarter, not harder. Well, I like to do both. Let's go back just for a quick second and wrap up Fannie Mae. You bumped into these ladies at this table. What happened from there? They saw that I was sincere and wanted to do business, and they understood a lot about me because they basically interviewed me while I'm eating my salad and my, and my chicken there at this dinner or this lunch, and, and I had no idea they were interviewing me. I didn't know this was a, a table full of Fannie Mae asset managers. They got the most genuine and sincere answers that they would ever get. I just thought they were peers or, or you know, somebody from an organization just attending to hear the FDIC. I had no idea. So if you don't have your game face on all the time, opportunities can come and go. So, again, I'd rather be lucky than good, but I'd also rather be prepared. Let's talk about what happens after you receive the business. 
Tell me, how do you market these properties to find buyers for these assets? It's a scientific approach, and I'm, I'm not being facetious. A lot of different homes appeal to different people as far as their personalities, their work, their price range that they're shopping in, and there's different features that they're looking for. So a lot of times, depending on where the asset comes, because I told you a lot of the counties here are dependent on different types of corporations, Kansas City is, is very segmented. So depending on where the property is, is how I'm going to advertise it. If it's something that's up in the airport area and it's a fixer-upper, boy, I know that thing's going to blow right out the, the door because we're full of uh, A&P mechanics in that area and they're hands-on people. So where are they going to look? Well, they're going to look on their bulletin board in their lunchroom. So that's where you've got to figure out on how to get your flyer up there. They're also like the Sprint campus, those houses over there. Kansas City is one of the most wired environments that you'll ever find. With Kansas City and Sprint being here, if a property ends up near there, it's one of the most wired markets that I know of. It's no coincidence that Google picked this for their new high-speed area Internet. They say it's going to be 100 times faster, and they pick Kansas City to come. So if I'm looking in that market, where are those guys going to shop? Well, it's all Internet kids. I'm going to put that thing on Craigslist. I'm going to put it on my Facebook. Those are the places where you're going to get those properties sold. Depending on who you think the buyer is, is where you need to advertise that property. Then, why not just advertise them all in all the cross markets that way? Because your client doesn't live there and is going to stay there. People do move across town sometimes. When you talk about cross markets, what do you mean? Say you just got done... You went to school at Johnson County Community College, and you are going to move up north of the river near the airport. That's what I'm saying. Sometimes you have different markets coming from different places. One of the nice things that I like to use is our Century 21's ability to publish our listings through IDX on websites all over the place in multiple languages. All of my listings are advertised in Spanish and in English. Kansas City, you never know what's going to happen here. All of a sudden, we might be hiring a whole bunch of workers from the other side of town or from the other side of America. And if your listings aren't everywhere on a national scale, you're going to miss out on business. You mentioned multiple languages for advertising your listings. Is it just Spanish and English, or are you also advertising in other languages beyond that? Our company speaks seven languages here, and we advertise century21espanol.com and also, of course, the, all the English websites. I don't have any other websites built that I know of that are going into other languages besides Spanish and English right now. But I'll tell you what, if I was in Los Angeles, I would have them in all kinds of languages. Are you able to track business sources on the breakout between English and Spanish? Do you know what percentage of your business is either one? I'd say less than 2% of our business is English as a second language. It's not very big, but you know what? I'm greedy. I want that 2% also. You never know what's going to come through that pipeline. You absolutely never know who's going to answer the phone when you call someplace. You don't know who's calling you. You've got to have your game face on at all times. It could be a cash buyer who wants to buy 100 houses or an apartment building. It could be uh, Donald Trump wanting to build a, a skyscraper hotel on top of your crack house. You don't know. You've always got to be ready for that phone call. So you have people who can answer the phone calls that come in off of your Spanish website? 
yes, we have at least maybe a, out of the 198 agents I think we have here, I'd say 10% of them speak Spanish fluently enough to sell a house. I'd say another 10% speak enough to get in trouble. And as far as the other languages, uh, yeah, we're only counting fluent languages we could actually sell a house in. Because I could probably find five languages I know how to say beer in, but I don't think I could tell you thank you for getting it for me. Do you speak Spanish? Me hablo poquito español, amigo. Not much. I grew up in Southern California, so my Spanglish is probably a little rusty right now. You've talked about some of the ideas and ways that you sell these listings. By the way, that was really impressive. You're going to go down. I just want to point that out to everybody. You mentioned you'd go down to the base level of putting a flyer on a bulletin board because you think that that's where your target buyer would be looking. Yes, absolutely. And you know what? If it's the right flyer and you're sincere about that business, that one little flyer isn't going to sell you that one house. It's going to sell you 20 houses. Talking about these REO properties, a lot of agents get nervous because they're here. There's a lot of expense involved in taking on each of these listings. First of all, is that true? And secondly, what kind of numbers should people be anticipating? Here's the trick. Remember, always be careful what you ask for. You may get it. Even Niagara Falls started with one drip of water. I'll tell you what, I wasn't prepared for that. I've had over $100,000 floating on the street before. Have I made mistakes on the accounting for it? Oh, yeah, I'm sure I have. I don't want to know. Nowadays, it's a well-oiled machine. But if you're not prepared to float repairs, improvements, even simple things like lock boxes that get stolen and signs that get stolen and replacing doorknobs, I'll tell you what, in any given house, you could probably have a couple thousand dollars in there. What you need to be careful for is make sure your accounting's good because a lot of times what you'll outlay in expenses on a house will outweigh your actual commission. The return on investment can be brutal. How do you make sure you don't get burned? I have a fantastic bookkeeper here. Are you reimbursed for all the money that you put out? I have been reimbursed 100% on the ones that were acceptable. Sometimes receipts have been slow coming. You know, when you deal with the kind of volume we have, yeah, there's going to be an exception and a mistake or a timing error once in a while. Sure, I've probably taken a bath at $25,000 at least on stuff I'll never get back. But that's the cost of doing business. It's my fault. You know, if they have a 30-day window to get those proof of payment and receipts sent to them and documented and I don't get it there, whose fault is that? It's my fault. That's an expensive lesson. I think you're scaring some of our newer people or people that are just looking at this business. If they went to list one house, they probably aren't risking $25,000. you are talking about an aggregate with a whole bunch of homes and a bunch of minor errors that added up. Is that correct? I've had over $100,000 floating out there. And if you look at my average house price sale from last year, that's tiny. I'll bet you in, in, in some markets in, in New York or, or Texas, Florida, or California, I have a feeling one of my actual sales is equal to what they might have in a property sometimes. You've heard from my tone. I'm definitely not trying to scare anyone off of this business. What I'm saying is the ship may have sailed, but it's also not right for everybody. Unless you have liquid assets sitting around that you can float, don't try and you know do it halfway because you'll never get another listing from them again. If you're lucky enough to get an asset manager's attention, and you screw up that deal, you're never going to repair that relationship. Let's try to break it down to the base level 
for somebody who's trying to plan. If they were going to take REO listing tomorrow, how much money should they have in the bank or in reserves in order to do that whole transaction properly? I'll tell you what, if it's one of the HUD properties, not a penny. The HUD asset management companies are fantastic. They don't have you fronting any money up front. A lot of those places don't have it. Uh, some of them, you can actually get them to get a quote, and they'll pay the vendors directly. So, again, without naming specific asset management companies and names, it all depends. Some of them are a lot easier to deal with than others. And now I think they found out that realtors are not accountants, <laughs> so they've actually streamlined the process and have tried to eliminate us when they can. I heard something similar, that depending on who you were working with, you'd have to put up anywhere from a nominal amount up to even $3,000 per property. That doesn't surprise me at all, especially the cost of prices in, in some other markets that have more expensive real estate. $3,000, I wouldn't bat an eye on. But what if you're only going to make 2000 in commission? Are you willing to risk your 3000 to make your two? And sometimes it might take you four or five months to get that money back. And, and again, I'm just telling you guys the truth here. It's not for everybody. If you can work with your brokerage to help front that money and use their accounting, do it. When you just used your example of putting $3,000 up to make 2000 there's a belief that you're going to receive that $3,000 back from the asset manager at some time in the future, correct? Yes, if your paperwork is done correctly and on time. Let's talk about that timing of the cash flows. You have to put the money up up front. How soon do you get money back from the asset manager? What kind of time frame are you talking about floating that money? It depends on which asset management company, but I've had money wait six months to find its home back to me after it closed. We've also had stuff in 30 days get turned around. And again, I haven't been very specific with brand names, but I'll tell you what, if you can work with one of the HUD asset management companies or Wells Fargo, you're going to do just fine. Those are the ones that you've seen do their reimbursements the quickest. Those are the classiest, nicest companies that you can ever deal with in this business, in my opinion, from what I've seen. And Wells Fargo deserves that shout out for sure. What about paperwork and reporting with these REO folks? A lot of them can be more intensive than others. And again, each one has its own different personality. I've got four children. You wouldn't think they were related if you hear them speak, yet they're all my children. So what I'm saying is even though they're all asset management companies, each company has its own personalities. Do you typically have to do a weekly report, a monthly report? Is there any kind of standardization there? Tell you what, of the three different HUD asset management companies, some want the report weekly, some not weekly. And it can just be incredible when you're dealing with those time frames because you've got to be organized. You've got to have your act together. Again, I'm going to tell you this as a, as a bit of advice in this business. It's not a sales job. This is a service job. Anyone that thinks that they're selling for a living is crazy. You're providing a service-based business that results in a sale. That's who succeeds is the people that remember this is a service job first. Do you still do your own BPOs? Yes. Yeah, BPOs are maddening. I recite those things in the middle of the night to myself. Did that help you early on to get in with any of the banks doing BPOs? Yeah, oh yeah, that's how you earn your stripes. 
lot of those places, you know, if you throw in Google BPO companies, you got to earn your stripes. And remember what I'm saying is if you're not prepared to jump into get bank listings by already knowing what to do and how to perform your BPOs, you're out of business. Don't waste your time chasing them until you earn your stripes. And earn your stripes, go do 5,000 BPOs. I'm telling you, you, you become a pricing expert. Becoming a pricing expert helps you when you list normal houses, and it also makes you a fantastic buyer's agent because you know exactly how to price those properties. Can't say enough good things about BPO, BPOs being teachers. Teaching you how to narrow in on the market and become an excellent pricer. Yes, pricing is everything, and to learn pricing, you need to learn BPOs. You can't do enough BPOs to stay sharp. And the best way to get good at BPOs is to... Just do the BPOs. And you can either, there's a million places online that you can use a search engine to find. But also, sometimes if you find that big producer and you want to go help them to learn more about the business, offer to do the BPOs with them. You'll do them, and then they'll probably double-check them. And you get graded on your BPOs by these companies, too. And if you do a bad job, ain't going to help you. Last year, when you closed the 1,200 transactions, you didn't do that all by yourself. No. No, I did not do every single BPO. To me, if, you know, I also didn't do my own dentistry work and I didn't cut my own hair. I'm not good at those things. What I'm good at is putting the whole formula together. Can you walk us through the tasks that are required in order to be a good REO agent and which of those tasks you do and which ones you farmed out to either one of your staff members or the one of your inner circle agents? It really depends on geography. There's been times where I've been asked to take listings that were four hours away from me. Not a lot of that stuff is going to get done for me that's not marketing related. It's incomprehensible that I'm going to be able to drive out there in four hours and do a BPO for an hour on that property and then drive back. It just doesn't work. So depending geography-wise, where it is, is is how much I get involved. The day I quit being involved on day-to-day things, well, that's going to be an interesting day, but that's also when I'm going to stop learning and my business will decline. I've got to stay in it. Again, geography-wise is how we drive this. So if it's something where I can get in and knock out a few of them and get around, what I usually do is I'll take my uh, Samsung Galaxy Tab with me, and I'll do most of the work right there when I'm in the house, or I'll park in the driveway after I inspect it. The Galaxy Tab is a lot, I guess, like an iPad, which I've never played with one. But I can take the pictures right then and there with it. Heck, I could even Skype the asset manager on there if I wanted. And I can also upload all the data and enter it all right there. It's all about being very quick, very efficient, and streamlined. My trunk right now in my car has everything I need to break into a house, snap padlocks. I've got uh, pry bars. I've got a sledgehammer. I've got uh, graphite lubricant. I've got WD-40. I've got signs. I've got lockboxes, doorknobs. I can't tell you. When I go someplace, I'm a one-stop shop, and I'll bust it all out in one time. That's the only way you can perform on a high-volume basis. You have all the tools to get access into that property. Is that the focus? I'm a professional cat burglar. I bring dogs with me when I go into some of these neighborhoods and have to do inspections. If I've had a problem with it, I have a 145-pound Rhodesian Ridgeback, and that is a fantastic dog. 
and it knows exactly the drill when I go to these homes, and it's my own home, I'm doing the inspection, I'll bring the dog with me. The dog will, will, will flank me like uh, the Blue Angels. And sometimes I can say, go check it out, or who's here? And the dog will run through the whole floor of the house and check everything and go crazy and then come back to me at the front door. Uh, we've had some bad neighborhoods uh, that we've dealt with in Kansas City before. One time a guy was doing a BPO for me in a, a not-so-desirable neighborhood, and he got in the middle of a drive-by shooting. His truck, where it said Super Duty on the front of it, said Super, and then a bullet hole, and then Duty. It was a, a one-in-a-million shot. It was a forty-five slug that hit something behind that and stopped right then and there. So going in those neighborhoods, you know, uh, it can be dangerous. And, you know, you've just got to be a, a smart, happy, polite person and go about your business the best you can. But sometimes even random gunfire, you know, that can happen. Well, Mike, we've just talked about this REO business and all these things that need to happen, the cost, the money you're putting up front. I think there's probably going to be some people that have the question on their mind, is it profitable? Volume solves all problems. Who's making more money, Nordstrom or Walmart? If you sell to the masses, you can live with the classes. I think that's what somebody told me a long time ago. Sell to the masses, live with the classes? Yep. I stole it from somebody. I listen to everything. The one thing I've got business-wise that I think is incomparable is a memory. I remember every person, every sentence, every conversation that I've ever had, and it's it's almost burdened when I go to these conferences because if I've spent 30 seconds talking to somebody or if they've asked me one question after a, a talk that I've given, I don't remember if it's one of my best friends or a broker that I know or someone in my marketplace. So if I wave and smile at you like a fool, sorry about that. That's just one of the curses of having that kind of memory. Would you be willing to tell us what kind of profit margin as a percentage of your revenues that you're able to achieve in the REO business? No, my accountant could. I really don't pay attention to that. Again, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I drive my business on service and customer satisfaction and volume. And there's been transactions that I've lost money on. Without a doubt, I've lost hundreds of dollars on deals. Some deals I've lost thousands of dollars from sloppy accounting work. It's far and few between but I'll tell you what, I know it happens. I don't get analytical with my business that way. I have reports. I did run some this week, ironically enough. I'm refinancing my corporate building right now, and I had to pull some numbers. And I'll tell you what, significantly over the last few years, I've been able to, on the company dollars off of each transaction, I've been able to move it up dramatically each of the last three years. We weren't looking for a dollar number, just a percent. You know, if somebody brings in $100 in an REO transaction, how many of those $100 would hit the bottom line? I don't know. I don't run my business that way. My, my bookkeeper and my accountant run it that way, and they know I'm out of my mind, busy all the time. And it's one of those things where, where I know I'm not skilled to be a bean counter. I can't do it. I'm a people person, and I facilitate transactions. I can't do it all, and I know where my weaknesses are. And that's one of the ones that I have, and I farm it right out. I'm smart enough. I learned that lesson. Has your REO business driven the growth of your brokerage? Absolutely, it's driven the growth of my business. REO is the best thing that's ever happened to me. But I feel like the tax collector some days where it's just it's almost a sad way to make a living is off someone else's misfortune. But I've really gotten used to that. What I've done is I realized I didn't sell them the house. I didn't make them the bad loan. I didn't fire them from their job. I didn't give them the sickness that they had. 
all of those things are out of my control. The only things I can control are my own personal things. When other people have bad luck, I'm strictly coming in and cleaning up the mess after the fact. When you look at that business, one of the most brutal things that you can do, besides losing money or getting shot at, is let me paint a scenario that happened a couple years ago. Whenever I do a property inspection or an occupancy check, I usually try to bring someone with me. If it's a first-time occupancy check, the dog's not going to help a lot because he scares people. But my father, my father came with me. We were heading out somewhere on a trip around town. It was about December 20th, and the bank said I had to do an occupancy check. I brought my dad up with me to the door. We knock on the door. The wife answers the, the door, and the little kids are running around in the footed, cute little pajamas. You can see a Christmas tree in the back, and they were running around holding presents, giggling. There was Christmas music on. I'm telling you, it was a Norman Rockwell painting come to life. And here I am, the Grim Reaper, having to ask, hey, I know the house got foreclosed on. The bank sent me here to ask when you're going to move out. And the lady said, I don't know what you're talking about. My husband pays all the bills. I'm sure everything's fine. It's a mistake. Well, at that point, of course, you know that there's other issues, and all you can do is say, okay, yeah, you're probably right. Here's my card. Can you ask him to call? My father and I almost broke down completely at that point. My father said, what do they need financially to not lose that house? I'm going to pay it. I don't even know these people. Well, that's how I was raised. And so when I'm dealing with these occupancy checks when it's Christmas in that exact scenario, it's heartbreaking. Your skin will either get three inches thick or you're going to leave the business. So at that point, their house was already foreclosed on. There was nothing that could happen. But I'll tell you what, we worked out a nice cash for keys deal, and we went on, and that was the last time my father went on an inspection with me. He didn't have the three-inch thick skin. No, he did not. He never has, and that's the man who raised me. My mother and father raised me to be a caring, compassionate person, which is that's not really the, the makeup for someone doing my job, but actually maybe it really is. If somebody wanted to get into the REO business and they are completely fresh, what kind of recommendations would you make for them on education? Are there any places that you would send them to get educated, or do you think just becoming an apprentice is the absolute best way? There's nothing like applying the trade from the first day. Becoming an apprentice, but don't rely on one person to teach you what 100 can. Get out, take a BPO class. Google, you know, REO schools. There's now programs and designations that are teaching you the nuts and bolts of that stuff. Make sure you check around and recognize that some places create their own designation in their brain and want to teach you some kind of worthless set of skills and charge you 500 bucks. That's not okay. Make sure that if you take those classes, which I think you should, make sure that you know the reputable companies. You've mentioned technology you mentioned the Samsung Galaxy Tab that you use. What other type of technology do you use to streamline your business? I'll tell you what, that tab's done a lot for me. Also, you know, HCC smartphone, the Century 21 smartphone app, if you text C21 to 87778, it pops up the most fantastic search app on my smartphone. I love it, and it helps me find houses that I may not, you know, if I'm doing a BPO, I usually get an MLS and I can figure out what's going on in my comps. But I'll tell you what, once in a blue moon, something will surprise you, and I hit this little button that says search for local listings nearby, it'll pull stuff up that I missed, street names that I didn't know existed or neighborhoods, which can surprise you sometimes. That little search app is fantastic. Again, I started in this business when giving your cell phone number out to a customer was almost taboo because of the expense. So 
when you look at these things, high-speed Internet, of course, is, is a must. I mean, that's not even a question. We have a device that now when you take a picture with your phone or your camera, it wirelessly gets fed onto your hard drive, and that's fantastic. That'll save you a ton of money from trying to transfer those things onto your hard drive. And all the technology is so fantastic nowadays. I will tell you this, as I preach communication as your number one tool, make sure that you don't sit there and dial your phone or text your phone when you're driving. If you're in your car, you make sure you have a Bluetooth or voice dialing. Those things will save your life. You're doing a lot of things. You have a lot of balls in the air. How do you keep control of your time? Time management is something that's we're all a slave to time. That's one of the things that nobody can beat. And so you might as well embrace time. With time, my typical day, here goes. I wake up 6 or 7 in the morning, depending on what it is. I don't use an alarm clock. I get up, and, of course, the coffee is the most important, critical thing that I can do at that point. I get to my home office, which I love, and I pet the dogs, and I got the kids running around the house at some point in the day, and I focus in and I get my work done. Then when I have 100% completed, I go and I get ready for the office, and I go into whatever office I'm going to work out of that day, and from there I make some phone calls on the way to the office. From there I get in, I check in, I smile, I sign the contracts, I make sure everything's good. I might go to one of my other offices, and in between here and there I'll probably stop at four or five of the listings. And again, some of it's just an occupancy check, some of it's a sign check. I can't tell you how important a clean, straight, good-conditioned yard sign is when it comes to marketing properties. You see so many of those guys use those little flimsy plastic ones. pretty much tells me you're a flimsy plastic company. My signs are strong and sturdy and clean and straight, just like I'd like to think our reputation is here. So uh, once I get done with the offices, if I can get out of the office by, and I never go to lunch ever. If I go to lunch with somebody, it's probably my wife and it's a special occasion. A lot of times I'll grab a Slim Fast and drink it right here at the desk. I got in this morning, I haven't left the office. I might not leave till 6 p.m. But if I'm still here doing something, I'll tell you what, one of the ways I relax is I'll grab a nice Cotiba or a Zycar cigar, and I'll enjoy that while I'm here taking care of emails, database work, uh, loading photos, BPOs, that kind of stuff. Nothing will relax me more than a nice cigar. Then I'll go home, have dinner, see the kids, fool around, check on the homework, blah, 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 blah. And then I go back in the office for another hour or two in the evening, and I usually go to sleep about 11 p.m. And that's the happiest, most perfect schedule for my life and my wife and my kids. And we know it and we love it, and it just works out great. When I do go out of town, that Samsung Galaxy Tab is my lifeline. How many hours do you think you're working in a typical week? (laughs) I really don't know. You know, usually on Sundays around here, I usually don't do anything, and half of the Saturday I probably don't. My agents are constantly text messaging me, which is great, and and I love that they know that I'm always there for them. Basically, if I'm awake, my phone is on and I'm receptive to that kind of communication. But let's say uh, 7, 7, I'd say I'm working on real estate 10 to 12 hours of the day, but if it's something you enjoy, it's not really working, is it? So if you ask me how many hours I'm working, maybe none. If you ask me how many I spend taking care of real estate, quite a bit. Do you have a business plan? Yes, I do. But one of the things about me is I've got the skill of having a fantastic memory. I do have some written business plans, but most of my business plan is 
scribbled on a blotter in front of me. I do use my smartphone calendar and things in a Google calendar, but I'll tell you what, there's nothing like having that calendar blotter right in front of me, so if I'm on the phone, I can take my chicken scratch and get it on there, and I have bits and pieces of business plans and goals written on it. I have it on my phone as a to-do list, but my brain is really all-encompassing when it comes to those kind of details. Do you have a master business plan that you put together once a year? Yeah, every year Century 21 Corporate asks me for it. And as much as I may loathe taking time and getting reflective or sitting down and trying to plan because of my chaotic, busy schedule, those kind of things are very tough. But I do get down and take care of it. And my business manager from Century 21 Corporate gets on me because he knows how important it is. And we nail it every time. We also do a profitability study every year also. Do you track certain numbers in your business? Are there certain numbers that are more important to you than others? Close sides. That's what I care about, close sides. That's what I focus in on. i got to stick the sign in the dirt, and then taking out the sign in the dirt is more exciting. That means the sucker sold. A sign out of the dirt is a target for a paycheck. I just made that up. That's good. Do you track how many closings you're having each week or each month? Do you look at it every day? How are you tracking it? Do you have a goal set aside for a certain period? How are you following it? I follow it through my Century 21 accounting software. And if you are a company that's owned by Realogy, which is uh, Corcoran, ERA, Better Homes and Gardens, Cobalt Banker, and Century 21, we all use the same software format. And that tracks to the penny, to the percentage this year's sales versus last year's, or you can go to one day versus last year's the same day, or this month to last month, or last year to this year. It's unbelievable. And once a month, I sit down and I knock that thing out. But when I was telling you that I've changed my business model, where I'm trying to spread more business amongst my agents, I'm looking forward to having a little bit more free time to pursue some mergers and acquisitions later this year. And I need those time frames to to be compatible with the people that I'd like to acquire. So when I'm telling you my volume is down, it's by design, but my company dollars is up a lot. You've changed your business model. Describe what your business model looked like last year, what it looks like this year, and why you made the transition. Last year was madcap chaos. It was something that I just wanted to drive volume. Let's see if we really turn the faucet on how much water is going to come out. And that's we ended up doing over a couple thousand sides. I never thought I'd see quarter billion dollars worth of sales on the board for me. It's amazing. So this year, I said, okay, let's do this. Let's focus in on making more dollars per transaction. And that was something that I started doing when HUD 2 went to HUD 3 because of the personal volume I do is so dependent on those HUD properties, it really went hand in hand, and that's been my main goal. But when I tell you that it's working, it's very exciting because I do plan my business, and I'm careful and conservative when I do my planning. But since I got started in September of 2002, I've either merged into my company or purchased 15 different other real estate companies. So what I've found is some companies want to tell you, you know, recruit agent by agent and keep doing this. Well, if I recruit a whole company, I can pick up 10 and 15 at a time. That's a way better thing for a volume-minded person like me. 
So you've achieved growth in your brokerage through mergers and acquisitions rather than one agent at a time. Correct. I will send out notes to the new licensees that pass the test here. I don't want to help some knucklehead who failed at another business think that I'm the Messiah and he's going to make a living off my business. What I want is a fresh mind who wants to work and is motivated. I've actually bounced about 10 agents this year that just had an old sourpuss attitude, and I hope some of them hear this, and I tell them I wish you the best of luck. You should have been nicer to the co-ops, and you should have been nicer to the people you work with. There's Niceness is never underrated. It sounds to me like the transition that you're making from last year to this year is last year you were focused completely on being an active producing agent, generating that volume. This year you're trying to get your current agents producing more at a higher dollar volume as well as looking at future acquisitions to grow your brokerage. Is that correct? Yes. And some of the extra things I'm doing with my time by design right now is I'm consulting with other brokerages in states around the country on how they become more successful more profitable and how to do more business in the marketplace. Because when I actually said, let's turn the faucet on, we dropped a couple thousand transactions. I'm loving that. So this year, controlled growth, specific transactions, company dollar goals in mind per transaction. It's working, baby. And I'm very happy. So are you trying to push up your average sales price? Nah, I can't control that. I'm trying to push up the dollars that the company makes per transaction. Are you achieving that by charging a higher commission? Are you charging fees in addition to your commissions? We've gotten away from additional commissions. That is something that came and went. Additional commission is okay. As you know, some of the transaction fees that people were putting on there and calling transaction fees, uh, there's a backlash uh, legally around the country right now on that, and some of the bigger firms are getting sued. You know, we want to avoid that completely. But what I've done is we've been more selective on our business. And the cheap, cheap, cheap houses that don't pay as much, yep, let's let somebody else have those. You know, the the company, when we pursue listings, if somebody wants a discounted commission, yeah, that's not us either. We provide full service. We demand full commission. And our company commissions are written on a policy, and those are our own, and that's what we follow. Mike, what drives you? Wow, that's one of the things that I always wonder because when people ask me, how, what drives you? What are you doing? I just sit there sometimes and and I have to, to be reflective, and that's definitely not my nature. Goal setting is important. One of the first trainers I ever had said, write down your goals on a post-it note and put it on your dashboard of your car. Look at it, say it, breathe it, live it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's kind of hokey. Oh, yeah, well, then I started doing it, and fantastic things have happened, literally. I've upgraded my life, I've upgraded my wife, I've upgraded everything in the world. Business is just fantastic. You know, plan it. And if you're not planning it, you're not going to meet it. The goal setting is everything. But in nature, I'm competitive. I'm the little engine that can. And I tell myself, why can't I be the number one volume realtor in America? I've done it before. You want to do it again. Let's think about it. And there's trade-offs in life. Like I was telling you, this year I'm trading off a few things to grow my business as a whole instead of my own personal business myself because you have a couple of different ways. What I'm trying to do is grow my asset, my business. Say I got hit by a bus. My wife can't sell my body to somebody. It's gone. What she can sell is my business. So if I focus in on growing my business, that's a true tangible asset where if it's just Mike Phillips, hey, 
you know, I might not even be a good-looking corpse when I'm done, so it's not going to be worth anything when it's gone. Why are you successful? I have to be. That's the whole thing. I'm driven and I'm competitive. Uh, it's interesting. If you look sometimes at the way a family breakdown of where the children are, uh, I'm the youngest, and the youngest uh, a lot of times are the most successful. Uh, it's because we had to fight so hard, and we had to learn how to maybe sell ourselves to the older brother so you didn't get a noogie or you know, to be able to get things done in the family. So there's a lot of different skills that the youngest can have just from growing up through osmosis of life. So when it comes to being number one, who would want to be number two? I sure wouldn't. It's not an egomaniac thing to say. It's if it takes the same effort, I'm going to be number one, and I'm going to take care of business. And you know what? I'll tell you what. If you're not number one right now, break down your business in a 100 different ways. You're going to find something you're number one in build off of that. That came from a guy named Mike Berry, and Mike Berry is a fantastic instructor. There's a few people that have really helped me, uh, Mike Berry, uh, Jan Pringle, and Anita Overstreet, and all three of them have crafted my business in so many different ways. You mentioned that you were the number one agent in the nation. Tell me about that. When did that happen, and whose ranking was that? A company called Real Trends puts out a uh, report every year in the Wall Street Journal. I was coming back from a, a crazy weekend in Vegas, and I sat next to an agent that was a competitor of mine. And they're like, look at my trophy. I just won this for being such a fantastic agent. I'm like, who gave you that? Oh, well, the Wall Street Journal. So I'm like, oh, my goodness, what in the world is this? Where did this come from? So I look it up. It's a real trends which promotes and distributes information that is fantastic about the real estate market. When I get analytical, that's one of the places I go. I looked it up. They only published their list in the Wall Street Journal. So when I looked at it, the next year, I'm like, eh, I'll throw my stuff in there. I think I was number two or number three in the country, and then I went to number one, and I think that was 08 or 09, and then I think it was number Three, two people in Michigan did more volume. See, when I look at it, there's dollars and there's sales volume. And the sales volume is the one that I look at on units. Because of my marketplace, with my demographic, I'm never going to have the most dollars on sales ever. That's going to be New England or Beverly Hills or something like that. With here, the thing I can compete with is volume and units. And you know what? A house is a house. I sold the most houses. Last year, like I was saying, I did over 1,200 houses I think Real Trends reports come out in September, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. It might be out now. I don't pay a ton of attention to it. But once a year for the last few years, I sent that in, and I've been number one, number two, and number three, and I think backwards and forwards on that. I don't know. But, you know, it's one of those things where there's no other way to track that stuff. You have no idea what these other companies are doing and these other people. In your own MLS, I know you can look that up. And in my MLS for Kansas City, I think last year I was the number one in dollars and the number one in units. But again, this year, I don't want to do that. I want to spread my business around. I want to have more people helping me and making more money around me and allowing me to do those other projects that are consulting and also mergers and acquisitions. If you were to advise a brand new agent just getting into the business, what would you tell them to do first? The one thing is, is you've got to remember, you're here to facilitate a transaction. You need to treat everybody better than you treat yourself. If you become a great co-op agent, people like doing business with you. You have no idea the rewards that'll pay. Second, most people that you're going to deal with, their primary home is the number one significant investment they're going to make in their life. 
let me tell you this. Why don't you live a little under your means with your own personal house and go buy an apartment building? Don't let your personal residence be the most expensive thing you own. Buy a commercial building. Buy a acreage. Buy something significant and watch the returns years from now. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about? As a new agent, I want you to focus in on one thing. Until you can create your own business, you're not going to make it in this business. Press the flesh. So many people want to do business on Facebook or LinkedIn. You'd be shocked at what happens when you actually show up and introduce yourself to somebody. Somebody goes, oh, hey, aren't you my Facebook friend? You say, no, I'm here right now. (laughs) I'm your real friend. Always promote the listings the best you can. Get the room measurements in there. Never do sloppy work or take a shortcut because that's a reflection on you. And I'm living proof if you set your mind and focus in on a goal, it will become real. Well, Mike, you're living proof that amazing achievements can be accomplished by those with a plan, a focus, and a commitment. You are an inspiration to all the agents who come after you. You've raised the bar to a level few could have imagined a short decade ago. Your diverse office and your dedication to service reflect your pure core values. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.